All right, let's um, let's open a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for this day. We pray that you will um, in- encourage uh, those of us who are listening to this today that uh, you are in control of everything and that we need to look to you and you alone for our hope and trust. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the title today, This On The Edge. And part of that is based, uh, I do spend time on social media, and I can tell you that everybody is on the edge. Now, they're either on the edge of a total breakdown or something else, but there are a lot of people that are really uh, stressing out. And we, we need to know that this is what the end times look like. Um, I, ha- I know that's not very comforting, but what did you expect? <laughs> uh, you know, there's plenty of prophecies that tell us about what's coming and everything. And so we need to be, we need to be prepared for these things. The, again, we talk about the convergence of events that are taking place in our world that seem to be getting closer and closer together. Um, most weeks now, I do not... Uh, even begin to scratch the surface of the things that I would like to share with you um, just because of time. But it is a very disrupted world. And again, we continue to be throttled a bit on social media. So you can always pick up our updates at rtntv.org or the Run the Truth Network app. Let me just start with a passage of scripture today that I think... While it deals with Israel, I think we should be able to uh, take some comfort in it. That's Psalm 121. I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills from whence cometh my help. My help cometh from the Lord, which made heaven and earth. He will not suffer thy foot to be moved. He that keepeth thee shall not, will not slumber. Behold, he that keepeth Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is thy keeper, the Lord is thy shade upon thy right hand. The sun shall not smite thee by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord shall preserve thee from all evil, he shall preserve thy soul. The Lord shall preserve thy going out and thy coming in from this time forth, and even forevermore. So we need to know that the Lord is in control. So I'm going to take a look at a lot of different things today, just some a couple of humorous things. You can imagine there's actually some relatively humorous things that are going on. Um, we'll take a look at um, the election thing. I have some clips on that. A cultural thing on a new documentary on transgenderism that's out this week. Um, I'll play a little clip from Matt Walsh on that. Then we'll talk mostly about uh, the Middle East. And it it is really, I I mean, I must have been sent 20 things in the last 24 hours that took a lot of time just to try to confirm whether they were true or not. So if I haven't been able to confirm them, I might make reference to them, but there's some that I've not been able to confirm yet. Now, one of the things, you remember these little monoliths that kept showing up all these different places? There was one out in the desert in in Utah, in the Four Corners region, uh, these stainless steel monoliths, and then that one disappeared and it showed up, and one showed up in Romania, and now one has showed up in uh, California. 
Um, somebody suggested this, maybe take a little closer at them, and I think you'll find that this is really what they are. Um, <laughs> McDonald's kiosk. And uh, so you might want to order to go. If you're allowed to even, are you even allowed to go in McDonald's to use these things these days? Um, here's a mem that somebody sent me. I thought this one was pretty good. Beginning of 2020, we're all in this together. Uh, end of 2020, call this hotline to report your neighbor. Or how about this one? On the left, we have normal people. And on the right, we have conspiracy theorists, at least based on today's definition. This is also an interesting one. I believe that this is the main Earth tracking station for... Uh, asteroids. And we, you know, everybody's upset and concerned about asteroids. It collapsed this week. Uh, it was decom Well, it started to collapse a couple weeks ago. Um, I think it's 900 feet in diameter. It's a pretty big one. I don't know if you've ever seen the one up here by Delaware that was one of the first radio telescopes. Um, well, this thing collapsed. The cables broke. And it's... I, I think it's... I don't think they'll ever recover it. So who knows if we're going to be able to uh, even track um, what's coming, <laughs> which is what I talked about last week. So, <coughs> so this is a, another graphic someone sent me this week. The sex reassignment surgery market is expected to grow into a greater than $1.5 billion a year industry by 2026. It's not going away. Now, there's a new video, a new documentary out on uh, HBO. I did watch it, um, as much of it as I could stomach. It tracks like four different families whose children are coming out as transgender, and I I would talk about it and play the clip, but I don't know if I could keep my um, keep from yelling. So Matt Walsh uh, on his YouTube channel, uh, he's a good he's a solid conservative. I'm sure we have disagreements theologically, but he looks at this as what's going on, and this is just a few minute clip of his analysis of it. It's about, he has about 12 minutes on his YouTube channel. You can go and find the rest of it. But it does look at one of, the, one of the children in this video. And what they're doing to these children is just, it's child abuse. And they act like, remember I, I showed you the law from the Australian state of Victoria where they're trying to criminalize any conversion therapy where you try to stop people from cutting off body parts if you try to stop them you're the bad but you you can advise them let their let these parents abuse their kids and and adult doctors and everybody mutilate these children and it's okay it's the world is completely flipped upside down and, and so when I look at that, I say the world is on the edge of just complete, total collapse. And in fact, there was a, another good video that I saw this week by uh, Camille Paglia, who is a, a professor, historian. Now listen, she is herself is a feminist and lesbian. But she has spoken about this transgenderism thing, and she says when men become effeminate, 
And you can watch it culturally. It happened to the Greeks, it happened to the Romans, and now it's happening to us. The men become these kind of feminized versions of men. Um, the society will collapse. And she says it's happened throughout history. And so she's not a Christian. She's, you know, not somebody that we would agree with on much. But she can observe this and say, this is really bad. So here's a little clip from Matt Walsh talking about this HBO documentary called Transhood. Like neighborhood, transhood. I think that's what they were trying to use the reference. Anyway, here it is. On Monday, a horrifying clip from a, a recently released HBO documentary went viral. In the scene, congregants at a Unitarian Universalist church are invited by the female pastor to, quote, proclaim their identity publicly as lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, queer or questioning, intersex, pansexual, asexual, or any category I've left out, unquote. A mother then pulls her young son, four years old it turns out, onto the stage to announce that he's really a girl. But the poor child has no interest in being paraded around like his mother's show pony, so he hands the microphone back saying that he doesn't want to do it. The mother takes it upon herself to come out on her son's behalf, informing the audience that her son, Phoenix, would, quote, like you to know that she's a girl and she prefers she and her pronouns. Completing this apparently familiar ritual, the pastor hands the child a pink flower as the congregation repeats its creepy affirmation in unison, uh, quote, may you be well, safe, and whole. We honor you exactly as you are. Of course, that's the exact opposite of what they're really doing. This isn't even the worst scene in HBO's Transhood documentary, which is now available on their streaming platform. The film follows four transgender children over the course of five years. It's clearly meant to promote and normalize the deranged sort of child abuse just described. But any rational person who subjects themselves to the film, which I did, but I wouldn't recommend it, We'll come away with a number of important insights that the filmmakers did not intend. Phoenix's case is, I think, especially instructive. Before the forced coming out party, we see the boy in a dress, uh, in a different scene, on a bed filled with lots of pink and rainbow-colored things, and he's being read a book called Jacob's New Dress by his mother. Uh, here's that scene, if you can stomach it. Then we slid into a shiny yellow dress while Jacob wiggled into a sparkly pink dress. What are you wearing? asked Mom. It's like a dress. I made it. Dad frowned. You can't go to school with that. Put on some shorts and a shirt under that dress thing, Mom said. And hurry, we're late for school. You're never late for school, right? What's wrong with school? Let's get the sewing machine, she said finally. Well, that's, that's just one of them. And they, they go on, on on with another one. And another one, the, the, the young boy who they've she's got long pink, he has long pink hair, and they're calling her. And she's saying, like, so I have a book I've written about this. I guess I'm going to have to go out and do media interviews again. I hate this. I really made a mistake. The, the kid is, like, 11 or 12 years old. And Matt makes a point later in his, his commentary on this that, listen, this is uh, proxy by Munchausen. This is a phenomenon where usually mothers will 
make their children ill so they get attention. He said this is exactly what's going on in this case and the problem is that the school people and the school administrations and the churches and the doctors and the psychologists are all going along with it. We used to put people we used to take kids rescue kids in this situation and now if you talk about it you're a hater so there there are nations on this earth where i if i talked about this or matt walsh talked about or anybody else you would be subject to hate speech crime this is so so when i say i title this on the edge what are we on the edge of we're on the edge of an abyss in society and i i would like listen i would love to come in here and tell you that everything is perfect everything is great this is just going to be fine. Now let's look at the election. Uh, this is a, a blurb from a couple years ago. Dominion Voting Systems acquired by its management team in Staple Street Capital. It's interesting that in the course of this acquisition, which took place, I think, about three years ago, uh, Dominion was advised by Kirkland & Ellis. It's a big law firm. It's the former law firm. It's a law firm where Attorney General Barr used to be a partner. Now, there are videos out there of Dominion people saying, I'm going to guarantee you that Trump's not going to win. There was a, one of the Dominion guys got on a phone call, a Zoom call with Antifa representatives or members, and said Trump's not going to win. So all these people can run around saying, oh, there's no evidence of fraud, there's no evidence of fraud. Listen, if you're saying there's no evidence of anything wrong in this election, you are completely deluded. You are... I, I don't know how else to say it. Um, hang on a second. I want to change in order of my slides for a second. I, I, I don't even know how to... Um, say what I, it's almost impossible for me to talk about on a rational level so let's just look at some of the things I mean there there are some anomalies in this election that are um, stunning so here's a comparison 2016 to 2018 to 2020 this based on a survey that shows that what so, so Biden got more votes than anybody in the history of presidential runs. He got what did he get? Eleven. I mean, I heard it was like five million more. Now it's eleven. There'll be twelve. It'll be thirty million more than Obama got at the height of his popularity. And I'm saying it's not possible. He wasn't even that popular among the Democrats when they were run, running the election. Kamala Harris. She never ran in a primary because she was so unpopular. Yeah. And we're to believe that these two people who never went anywhere got more votes than anybody? I just don't believe it. And here's another one. So here's some interesting anomalies. So Trump like got the support for the Democrats among minorities fell below levels that they needed to win. Anybody said they needed to win across the board. Yet Biden got more votes than ever. The... Um, among religious groups, Democrats support. You can see what happened. It, it dropped among every religious group. And Biden got more votes than ever. There have been, over the last 40 years, there have been 19 counties in the United States, one of which is a county we used to live in, Vigo County. 
in Indiana, Terre Haute. And in each presidential election, those 19 counties select, voted for the one who ultimately became president. They're called bellwether counties. This year, 18 of the 19 counties went for well, you would expect, well, so if they'd done it for the last 40 years, they would have all gone, or mostly gone, for Biden, right? No. They all went for Trump. 18 of the 19 went for Trump. By larger margins than they ever have before. I mean, I, look, I went to, I, I grew up part of my life in Johnstown, PA, which is a very blue-collar steel worker. It was heavily Democratic. When We had Democratic congressmen, we had our state reps and everything, the state senators were all Democratic. Trump won that like 70% to 30% in Cambria County, Pennsylvania this year. But Biden got more votes than anybody in history. Um, this is crazy. You've seen, I'm not going to go into, I could spend, there were a lot out, you can find all the videos of the hearings and everything. This is the one that occurred down in Atlanta. And they said, well, we just pulled them out. Well, okay, you just pulled them out, but what did you do with it when you pulled them out? You were not supposed to do that without the observers being there. And they put the Republican observers way back, six, at least six feet away. And the worst, probably the most egregious conduct I heard of was in, in, in Michigan and in Detroit, where the Republican, you know, if the Republicans started to challenge, they were allowed to move up to make a challenge. But if they did, they were then told to get out, especially if they were white males. You, this is, this, this is, there are people who've signed affidavits to this. And we are in the midst of a massive propaganda campaign about what happened in the election. Now, I don't know what the result is going to be. I'm going to play two uh, people who have filed affidavits in Michigan. Um, and there are hundreds and hundreds of these affidavits, and yet you'll have people say, well, there's, what, where's your evidence? Well, my friend, I'm an attorney. That is evidence. Now, look, you can refute it with your own evidence, but they, they haven't even had to do anything. They're just sitting back because this is a complete, it's a sham, and I don't know what the answer is. Some people suggest the president should invoke the Insurrection Act uh, I don't. I don't know. I, I don't know what the solution is. There's some appeals making their way to the U.S. Supreme Court, but we are really out of time. But just listen to these two women testify. This is just snippets of their testimony in Michigan. One lady was hired as a contractor by Dominion to monitor things, and her test. You need to look up her testimony. It's it's absolutely shocking. And then, and then what was the reaction of some of the Democratic reps in the Pennsylvania, or in the Michigan uh, legislative hearing? They tried to out these people, which they would never do for one of their, one of their own, so to speak. It's, it's just shocking. Listen to this. Things in my affidavit. Uh, I was at the TCF Center for 27 hours. I'm a mother. I have two children, and I have two degrees. I'm very... Um, I, I would never, I don't know any woman in the world that would write a, an affidavit under oath just to write it. <laughs> you know, you can go to prison for this. My manager had came up to, I had called my manager over to a specific uh, tabulating machine. I showed him 
a number on it, which was close to 500. It should never go over 50. Batches come in, ballots come in batches of 50. I said, we have a severe problem here. Nick, autonomous, which is a part owner of Dominion. And um, he said, Melissa, I don't want to hear that we have a problem. He said, we are here to assist with IT. We are not here to run their election. That is exactly what he said to me. Um, at that point, I was just really frustrated and upset. I, I could tell what was going on. I, I knew what was going on at that point. What was going on? Um, he was in on it. He was in on it. They were all in on it. In on what? They were cheating. It, it, it was very, very apparent. It was apparent. He knew. It was apparent that he was in on it. And when he caught on to me being in, knowing, me knowing that he was in on it, he just wanted nothing to do with me. Country through a border. How is that a vote, which is the single most important thing any person can do, is is actually being cast without an ID, without any any kind of oversight, and you know those ballots getting duplicated without an oversight, and all of this fraud that was happening. It was heartbreaking. So that's why I decided to put myself here. Another thing that um, I noticed is that um, there were democratic challengers there. I don't even call them challengers. They were agitators. They were only there with one purpose. When GOP people or nonpartisan people signed up, we were only trying to ensure that there was integrity. Whereas when the Democratic challengers signed up, their only purpose there was to intimidate the GOP people and get them out. So that was what was happening on the, th on the fourth when I got on the floor. I didn't have my GOP tag on, so automatically I was assumed to be a Democrat. And uh, I have seen some women who came to me and I said, Let the, let get, let's get these MFs out. And she was singing that song. And for me, I don't listen to secular music. And these days, you can't even tell what is cussing and what is a song. So I thought maybe she was really singing a song. But then when I saw that she was targeting white male Republicans, accusing them of something like your mask slipped, you were not six feet away, so you need to go out, and you know your phone was out. And they were really intimidating all these white people. And I put myself out there, tried to help them, saying, why are you getting them in trouble? And they said, why are you taking their side? Then I, then I showed my GOP tag, and then she said to me that I am on the wrong side because I had a GOP tag on. I was literally shocked that you know somebody can judge me because of my political affiliation and say whether or not I'm on the right side or wrong side. I can think for myself. But, uh, but then, I, then at that point, uh, I saw that I mean, Republicans were getting escorted, um, and so many people got escorted that we became like pretty scarce. Like we couldn't even man. Like we had only one person manning like four or five tables because we were so low on numbers, and there were so many Democratic challengers there. So I just went to Election Integrity Fund and got my nonpartisan tag. And the reason I did that was not because um, I was not there for for my party or trying to do something on behalf of my party. I'm just trying to ensure that the right thing is being done. So when I got the nonpartisan tag at the counting board, they, the poll workers were very respectful because of my nonpartisan tag. But when I had the GOP tag, the first thing they said is six feet. You know the rule, or you will be sent out. The center. So she later testified also that uh, when she saw the ballots, now these are ballots that are sent out, they're filled out supposedly, and they're mailed back. What she noticed was that for the most part, the the dates on the ballot were like November zero blank postmarks. Yeah. 
She also noticed that the ballots were almost perfectly, not always, but in number sequence. Now, I'm sure that that just happened and that they all came from like, she was looking like they all came from one neighborhood uh, in Detroit. And they were almost always for, they, I think she was the one who testified that they were all for Biden. The other places like down in Georgia with these other ballots that were brought out, the people said that they, a lot of them were only for, Bi, for Biden. And they have the little, you have to color in the circle. The circles were all color, colored in exactly the same perfectly from ballot after ballot. So this has been, it, it, listen, if you say that there was not questionable activity and conduct on a massive scale in this particular election, you, are, you lack complete intellectual curiosity. And I say that to anybody who, I don't care what party you are, whether you're Republican or really Rhino or Democrat or whatever, this is this has really been egregious. Now the answer is I don't know what's going to happen. Uh, time is very short, uh, so I guess just you know get some popcorn and watch what's going on. But you can go watch the videos of these hearings, and it's just it is it's horrible. It's, that's what somebody said. It's horrible. Now the other thing we have going on are these. And look, this I, I'm more and more convinced that the uh, lockdowns and everything came about so people would send in mail-in ballots which would give opportunity for fraud. There's no question in my mind about that. And there are plenty of lockdowns that are going on. Now, the Supreme Court in a California case this week, Harvest Rock Church, um, went along with its decision in the New York case a week ago and essentially said, listen, we're sending this case back to the Ninth Circuit. You need to go read our opinion in the New York case and do the right thing. Well, who knows whether they'll do the right thing or not. Now, even with the, and here's what the opinion actually said, the application for injunctive relief presented to Justice Kagan and, and by her referred to the court. So what happens is the a request for injunctive relief goes to the justice assigned to that circuit. So in this case, it's Justice Elena Kagan for the Ninth Circuit. She looks at it, and she decided that the whole court should look at this. And they said it's treated as a petition for a writ of certiorari before judgment, and the petition is granted. The September 2 order of the United States District Court for the Central District of California, that's the L.A. area, is vacated, and the case is remanded to the United States Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit with instructions to remand it to the district court for further consideration in light of Roman Catholic Diocese versus Brooklyn, uh, the Brooklyn versus Como. By the way, that decision of Como, the way it was presented to Como, you know what he said? I don't have to pay attention to that because it was the Supreme Court is biased now. They have a conservative majority, and I don't have to pay attention to them. We're in, we're in lawless times. How lawless? Well, this is an interesting statistic. This is from the New York Times. In nine months in New York City, they've had nine trials, criminal or civil. Uh, the wheels of justice have ground to a halt. 
and they're putting in these draconian lockdowns on people. I think this, and it's particularly in California, and Governor Gavin Newsom, you know, who got caught eating at the fancy restaurant with the head of the California Medical Association and others, uh, was confronted on CNN or something the other day about, you know, do you think you're being a, a hypocrite or something? And he said, I'm just doing, I'm doing my job, and you need to leave me alone. So this, as I said last week, if hypocrisy was water, the world would drown. But I think this video is put up by a restaurant owner in Los Angeles, and I think it encapsulates, I, I've watched this a number of times, and I get increasingly outraged by it. Here's a restaurant owner talking about the fact that even though she had set up outside dining, she has now had to close her restaurant per, per the order of Mayor Garcetti of Los Angeles. Listen to this. So this is my place, the Pineapple Hill Grill and Saloon. If you go to my page, you can see all the work I did for outdoor dining, for tables being seven feet apart. And I come in today because I'm organizing a protest and I came in to get stuff for that. And I walk into my parking lot and obviously Mayor Garcetti has approved this. Has approved this being set up for this being set up for for a movie company and there are other videos showing them eating there can you turn it back up it's being taken away from me i'm losing everything Everything I own is being taken away from me. And they set up a movie company right next to my outdoor patio, which is right over here. And people wonder why I'm protesting and why I have had enough. <laughs> they have not given us money and they have shut us down. We cannot survive, my staff cannot survive. Look at this. That's her restaurant. Tell me that this is dangerous, but right next to me as a slap in my face. That's safe. This is safe. 50 feet away. This is dangerous. Mayor Garcetti and Gavin Newsom is responsible for every single person that doesn't have unemployment, that does not have a job, and all the businesses that are going under. And we need your help. We need somebody to do something about this. So would you consider that compelling? Yes. And it's, it's almost no better here in Ohio. Um, I heard that there were some articles of impeachment filed against DeWine this week. I don't think they'll go anywhere, but... Uh, and it's not like I'm advocating not taking this thing seriously. Um, 
I know that the justice system is effectively shut down. Property owners can't get paid. They can't evict people. Um, on the residential side, that's supposed to expire. It, I don't. It just it seems very very chaotic to me. Now they're rolling out the vaccines. In the UK, they say that the first people they call it getting jabbed over there are going to start uh, tomorrow or Tuesday. Now this this is shocking to me that. New technology vaccines, I think they're using the Pfizer one, which is a modified RNA, which has never been used before. <coughs> and most vaccines take 5 to 15 years to be developed. These are done in uh, nine months on using technology that's never been used for a vaccine. It also requires, the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines require um, that they be stored at 70 degrees below zero. That, and so the, the complaint has been, we don't have the refrigeration capacity to store these things. And they don't have, they've not published anything about side effects or any of that type of thing. You know, you see the ads on TV for for pharmaceuticals. And there's always a big long list. Of, uh, they give you a list of about 10 things. Don't take it if you have these or have this reaction. And then you get the package and it's like a small, it's like a Bible sized thing on, on paper with all the different side effects and things that could come from just regular pharmaceuticals. And nobody's seen any of that with regard to these vaccines and they're running them out. Qantas has said, you won't be able to fly unless you have gotten, can prove to us that you got the vaccine. I assume this will set up a pretty active black market for uh, vaccine documentation. Um, <coughs> so, but it, it's like all the rules are suspended for this stuff. And nobody knows. And so, look, regardless of what you think about vaccines or anything, I'm concerned about these vaccines. I'm also concerned when they say, I've been reading for weeks, we can't distribute it, we don't have the refrigeration capacity. Or so. And then this is a picture in the independent magazine and in the independent newspaper in the UK this morning. Look at the line of refrigeration units that they have. And they asked to see the packaging, and they said, oh, we can't do that because it has to be specially broken apart by trained technicians. So do it, I guess, at your own risk. Um, personally, I would wait to see what happens to all the other people online ahead of you. Um, it's, I just, I've never seen anything like it. Uh, quick rollout, uh, and as I said, uh, according to the independent article here, first doses could be administered as early as Tuesday this week. Now, it'll take at least, they say, a year, but the way this thing is, I mean, they're manufacturing millions and millions of doses already. 
Now, because of the technology, it's probably it's easier to manufacture than some others. But, you know, we don't know much about side effects or anything like that. So, like I said, regardless of whether you think vaccines are a good thing or not, there's plenty of reason to be concerned about the way this is being done. And, the I mean, the head of vaccination, COVID-19 health or whatever they call it in the UK said, oh, you don't have to get the vaccine, but you're not going to have a very nice life if you don't. Um, this is also a concerning article. This was in the uh, London Times, the Sunday Times last week. Front page, Army spies to take on anti-vax militants. The Army has mobilized an elite information warfare unit. This is in the UK. You know, the, the home, I was there three years ago. I actually saw a couple of the original copies of the Magna Carta. Somebody needs to go over to the museum and at least pull one of them out and take them over to the government and show them at least that basis of British and American common law and jurisprudence. The Army has mobilized an elite information warfare unit renowned for assisting operations against Al-Qaeda and the Taliban to counter online propaganda against vaccines as Britain prepares to deliver its first injections within days. The title of this group is called the Defense Cultural Specialist Unit was launched in Afghanistan in 2010 and belongs to the Army's 77th Brigade. The secretive unit has often worked side-by-side side with psychological operations teams. Leaked documents reveal that its soldiers are already monitoring cyberspace for COVID-19 content and analyzing how British citizens are being targeted online. It is also gathering evidence of vaccine disinformation from hostile states, including Russia. Next month, the 77th Brigade will begin an uplift of professional and reserve soldiers to join operations. The brigade's badge bears the same mythical creature used by the Chindits, an Indian Army guerrilla warfare force known for its unconventional methods in the Second World War. The scaling of intelligence efforts come comes after at least 155 people were arrested, including for assault on police officer during anti-lockdown protests in the West End of London yesterday. Many appeared to be influenced by anti-vax propaganda and refused to wear masks. Ministers are alarmed at the impact that online propaganda is having on public opinion. Might I ask, could you guys take a little, like, a few hours a day and look at the propaganda with regard to our election? You know, just... To be fair, um, here's some quotes from the article. Last night, retired Army Brigadier Ben Berry of the International Institute for Strategic Studies think tank said the Army would probably become increasingly important in countering COVID-19 disinformation. A core part of its work was analyzing how messages flowed around the world, who was viewing messages, reacting, and then spreading them to other people. So listen, all this nonsense about, oh, they're going to give me a chip, they're going to tr- put a chip in me and track, they're already tracking you. Yeah, it's already there. Yep. The Ministry of Defense said the Defense Cultural Support Unit capabilities, okay, so the Ministry of Defense is now, this is propaganda, in my view. 
said the defense cultural support unit capabilities were, quote, not being directed at the UK population. 77th Brigade do not and have never conducted any kind of action against the British, uh, uh, British action against, or action against British citizens. So I'm going to, wait, this is the Haller fact checker. Lie! Lie! I mean, it's just what it said when the documents that they read. It was completely the opposite. They're tracking everybody. And then this last night, a cabinet spokesman said, as we edge closer to a vaccine, we continue to work closely with social media companies and other organizations to anticipate and mitigate any emerging anti-vax narratives and promote authoritative sources of information. I was looking through things this week and Facebook, I get like emails about, hey, here's you know, in-house legal jobs. And one of them was for to be a vice president at Facebook. And so I was wondering, should I apply for that? I mean, I, I would, if I did, I would negotiate a severance package in advance. I'd take my vacation right away. Um, but it would be kind of interesting um, to do that. And I actually wrote to them a couple years ago and said, hey, if you need some help you know, with somebody that might have a conservative viewpoint, Here's my phone number. I haven't heard from them yet. I guess they don't know where I am. Well, they do know where I am because they keep sending me ads for stuff that, like if I go look at stuff in the store, I go to this store and I look at this, and I go to this store and look at it, and then I get ads. And I've never looked in the search thing. I just think, oh, I'm in the store. Like, you know what, I, I might want to buy that tool or something. And then I go to another store just to compare price, and I'm getting ads for that tool. You, this all happens to you, right? Okay. But they're not going to track you. This is a concerning thing. This is Hong Kong. This is one of the leaders of the protest, democracy protests being led away to prison. Um, China is really, China is really locking down on protest in Hong Kong. And that has some very concerning aspects to it. Uh, this is kind of an interesting article from Elite Fighting Force Uses Modern Weapons Against the Biblical Foe. Now, we know that this is you know, in Ethiopia. They're having effectively a civil war. Some of the things, pictures and scenes that I've seen of that are just absolutely, the atrocities that are taking place is just shocking. Uh, but next door in Somalia, they're having biblical plagues. Um, the red areas are dangerous um, locust infestations. And they're increasing. I think the one says that to track the new swarms, which can be the size of towns and can travel more than 90 miles a day, uh, their unit that's their four-strong unit will use a fleet of 27 surveillance drones to predict their trajectory. When the locusts settle to rest, the team, um, they're fitted with night vision goggles, will go to attack them. What they're saying is that if they don't do anything because of wet weather that they're having there, they will increase like 40 times in a week in size. So now let's look more specifically at the Middle East, and we'll wrap up with this. Of course, we know that this um, 
Fazi Zaked was a nuclear scientist. He was in charge of the Iranian nuclear program. He was assassinated in a village where he lived about 30 miles or so outside of Tehran. Now there's a lot of speculation about how whoever did this accomplished it. Some people said they, there, was a, you know, there was a remote controlled uh, machine gun that shot at the vehicle. Others said it was people who were shooting at the machine guns at the vehicle. And these, this is not uncommon when these things happen. There's a lot of people get excited and they, they don't necessarily pick up exactly what they're seeing, particularly in an emergency situation like this when there are bullets flying around. But appears what happened was they, uh, they, the, the convoy, you can see it up at the top, it had gone down the road, then doubled back, because they knew this guy was at risk. So they doubled back, and then they came down, and this Nissan truck exploded, stopped the convoy, and then other cars drove up and started shooting at Fazi Zaked, and he was killed. His bodyguard tried to shield him, but he was also killed. And it was a, a stunning operation. You know, they, it, whoever did this, the most likely speculation is that it was Israel and the Mossad because they do this stuff all the time and it's again I don't know why somebody doesn't make a movie about this because it seems like it would be a great movie but because it's Israel of course we could never do anything that might celebrate their ingenuity and creativeness in doing these things and taking out a really evil guy I mean this guy's desire was to nuke Israel and us and they state that, the big Satan and the little Satan. They believe that, and they believe that they will cause the conflagration that will lead to the end of the world. That's part of their theology. They believe they can make it happen. And they have a bunch of people dedicated. Of course, the Europeans sort of had the common reaction. Um, their foreign ministry said that, well, you know, we don't really like this. Uh, this is a criminal act and runs counter to the principle of respect for human rights the EU stands for. Okay. This also happened, though. This was in the India-Pakistan thing a month or so ago when they had those conflicts there in the Himalayas. Pretty good evidence that the Chinese used microwave technology to essentially boil the insides of the Indian soldiers. So that's uh, interesting. I, at the, I haven't seen any statement from the EU on that particular thing, but taking out somebody who says, I'm going to nuke you and kill you, the EU gets their, uh, what's the old saying, panties in a bunch about that. Fazi Zaked, of course, they had a massive funeral for him, a, a funeral procession, including at the uh, Holy Mosque um, outside of Tehran. Um, I, think it's, I think it's the Imam Ali Mosque. There are these shrines that the Shiites have. And so this, this shrine is probably the number two Shiite shrine. Uh, there's one in Iraq that's even more important, and Iran, by the way, is funding some renovations there. 
And do you know that the pilgrimage, in terms of people who come to the Shiite shrine in Iraq, there's like two mosques. They have many times more people come to that each year on a pilgrimage than go to Mecca in Medina. Did you know that? So this is the funeral, and then, of course, at the end, they... Um, they take him out of the coffin and they bury him in the earth. And this is a big, so he's now a martyr. He's up there. You'll see here there's some pictures of him next to Soleimani. Um, the military people spoke at his funeral. It was really the elites of Iranian military and culture that were there at his funeral at the different stops along the way. Here you see, I think, a picture of him and the other martyr, Soleimani. So this was a big, there it is. This is a big deal in Iran that they uh, did this. And I think at the end you'll see that they're pulling him out of the coffin and burying him in the earth. Well, I don't know that you need to see that, but listen, this is a very significant thing that happened. This was very important. This is, uh, this is the shrine, that uh, Imam Ali shrine, where he was, and then he's buried there at one of the, I think he's buried at another mosque in uh, Tehran. At the same time, this is going on. We always say Shuni, Shia and Sunni don't get along. But here's an article that Iran underlines need for increased economic cooperation with Turkey. So don't think that Iran and Turkey aren't getting along or they're not in this together. Um, and of course, Turkey issued statements about how important it was that uh, they have a strategic, or that you know, this was a terrible thing that happened to our Muslim brothers. Uh, Erdogan also this week that essentially, of course, they're having COVID issues, they're having severe economic problems in Turkey, but he also, the people who participated in the 2016 revolution have now been given life sentences without ch chance of parole. Hundreds of people. Uh, so Erdogan has a way of locking down. So now the question is, what's, what's Iran going to do with this? How are they going to react? And it's interesting, we heard all this from the Obama administration. If you do anything with Iran, it'll be terrible. They'll react, there'll be nuclear war, there'll be, you can't attack Iran, you can't do anything with Iran, et cetera, et cetera. So Trump is, to his credit, has put in a lot of very severe economic sanctions on Iran. They took out Soleimani almost a, a year ago. Now this guy is taken out. And what, if, Effectively, what's been the response? We haven't really seen a response yet. Now, I think they'll probably do something at some point, but I think Iran is kind of boxed in right now, and this is why is, I'm going to assume Israel did it. So whoever did this decided to act because the Biden administration, they think, is coming in in a month, six weeks, and that they wanted to box... So Iran doesn't want to do anything to retaliate because it might upset the benefits that they are pretty sure that they're going to get from the Biden administration, which is a, a reasonable assumption, given the way Biden has talked about it. He's, I'll talk about that in just a moment. 
So that's a very interesting situation. I'm more about Iran in just a moment. In the EU and Europe, France is in a bit of a turmoil. They put in place, now they did a security law. Part of the law that they did was, look, Erdogan says, uh, not Erdogan, um, Macron comes in and says, we need to create a French version of Islam. Well, the Muslims don't like that very much, and we need to stop Islamic separatism, so we're going to stop homeschooling in France. Now, that's also going to stop homeschooling for Christians, but that's okay, who cares about the Christians anyway? Erdogan is upset, it's caused a big rift within NATO, between Turkey and France, and other countries in NATO that are going along with what Macron did. And Macron's trying to balance this. He has tacked to the right. He was becoming very unpopular in France because they had, these, they had multiple problems. They had these Muslim attacks and that sort of thing. So he put in the security law. Now, this, one of the aspects of the security law is that it says, listen, you can't take a picture of a police, you can't do a, video, a YouTube video of a policeman when he's doing an arrest and put it up on YouTube or you go to prison. And there have been very large protests across, um, across France because of this security law. Macron, they think, is trying to create some significance on his part. His goal was to create a sort of a mil military alliance within the European area. But now that he thinks Trump is not going to be president and Biden's coming in, He's losing his significance, he's tacking to the right, and his popularity is as high as it's ever been since he's been in office, just over the last couple weeks, because he put these things in. But people, they're protests on the street, they're burning vehicles, and that type of thing. At the same time, there's this shuttle diplomacy that's going on. Jared Kushner went to Saudi Arabia this week to meet with Mohammed bin Salman, which some commentators have called them the two princes. Uh, they seem to have a very strong relationship, and part of it was Kushner wanted to put in place more normalization deals before the Trump administration, I'll say, would, will or might leave office. Uh, he did not succeed. He has, uh, as far as I know, he's returned to the U.S., um, but he was trying to put in these things. I think he might have also gone to Qatar, uh, where he had had some financial relationships before Trump took office. Qatar has come out and said just in the last 24 hours, we're not interested in any normalization deal. So, at least right now. <clears throat> so Saudi Arabia has backed off, um, at least softly. Who knows, who knows what's going to happen in the next... Uh, 45 days. It, it's going to be a strange time <laughs> to be alive. We're on the edge of something. I don't know exactly which way it's going to go. Um, let me see what my... In Bahrain, the minister came out and said, hey, we're going to, our businesses are going to forge peace. And Bahrain, which has entered into a normalization deal with Israel, came out and said, listen, goods made in the West Bank... Are, can be labeled made in Israel and shipped to Bahrain. And I think the United Arab Emirates is on board with this. This is a, it flies completely in the face 
of the boycott, diverse, uh, divest, and sanction movement, the BDS movement. This is kind of uh, unusual. Again, the National Security Council of the UN came out and said, hey, listen, uh, Iran, now don't you try to attack Israeli, uh, Israelis abroad. Everything is in like a, um, a holding pattern because nobody knows exactly what's going to happen with the U.S. and everybody is looking at. There's a couple of articles that I would recommend. One of them is in the uh, Jerusalem Post. or they was, These were in the Jerusalem Post on Friday. You can find these online. One of these is by, um, you know, her first name is Ann. I can never pronounce her last name. But it's like Iran is waiting for the right moment. Um, very good article. Iranian actions, uh, this is what she's quoting someone. There have been many instances over the years where Iran actually has retaliated. They've sent drones into Israel. They shot down an Israeli jet a few years ago, which was the first one in decades. So they do retaliate, but it's usually a soft retaliation. And sometimes they may attack somebody else. Remember, they attacked the biggest oil refinery in the world with pretty precision-guided uh, missiles, drones, and other things uh, a little, about a year ago, a little over a year ago. It seems like, it was, it seems like ancient history. So they, um, here's what somebody said. They, Iran, are at a very complicated decisions crossroads just weeks before U.S. President-elect Joe Biden enters the White House. I don't think they expect the current administration to react if they carry out an attack against an Israeli embassy, but they need to take into consideration what the American reaction would be if they accelerate their nuclear program. Well, they're already accelerating their nuclear program. They've announced that. And the JCPOA, this thing that Obama entered into, entered into and sent them, was it not like $150 billion, including pallets of cash? They didn't stop them at all anyway. And Israel said, listen, we got to act. So they raided the warehouse. They took out their nuclear program head. So nobody knows exactly what they're going to do. Another good article that I would recommend is uh, Jonathan Spire, who I think is one of the better Middle East analysts analyst out there, that he, um, I'm going to read a couple quotes from his article. The Iranian retribution, intention to seek retribution is clear, but what form is Iran's response likely to take? Tehran possesses an extensive infrastructure of paramilitary client organizations across the Middle East, one or another of which might be activated to strike at Israel. Iran also has an extensive global network with a long history of terror attacks on Israeli, Jewish, and other targets. Retribution will almost certainly come from one or other of these possibilities. A conventional response from the Iranian state forces, which would amount to a declaration of war, is unlikely. Israeli and Jewish security structures are consequently in a high state of alert. And I would add, if you want to, like a good summary of Middle East news each day, about 15 minutes, uh, Israeli Channel 7, it's run by Christians, it's based in Jerusalem, they have an excellent 15-minute summary of Middle East news related to Israel each day. I would highly recommend it. You can subscribe to it. Israeli Channel 7, that's all you need to put into 
um, a YouTube search, and then you can look through their videos. They also do a two times a week, they put up about a 30-minute video dealing with certain issues. Like one of the videos this week was, uh, is Israel really prepared for Iranian retaliation? And there's controversy in Israel as to how well they are prepared. So if you want to follow that, that is uh, interesting. So here's what Jonathan Spire concludes. It may therefore well be that no rapid response to Fakir's killing is forthcoming. The alert in Israel and in Israeli and Jewish facilities worldwide is essential, of course. But in assessing such matters, the political and strategic context of past practice should not be ignored. It is also worth remembering the quote often attributed to Charles de Gaulle, according to which, quote, the graveyards are filled with indispensable men. Um, so, in other words, Iran's program is going to go on. This is just going to be a hiccup. It's mainly this was done to send a message. And if you want to look at what's happened historically, this article in Friday's Jerusalem Post, The Anatomy of an Assassination, they go back and they look at some other high-profile uh, assassination attempts that took place. One of the interesting things is that, remember they got Soleimani a year ago in Iraq. One of the assassinations that is referenced in this article took place in Beirut. And they, they were all set up to, do the, to set up the car bomb. And then the U.S. CIA said, well, we want a smaller bomb because we don't, want to we don't want a lot of collateral damage, do a targeted assassination. So they changed it. And so the person that they were going to assassinate with this car bomb came out with a group of people. And they decided to wait a little bit because he went in a building, we're going to wait till he comes out. Well, when he was standing by his car where they could have got him, was, he was in a group with Soleimani. This was about uh, 12 years ago, back in, I think, 2008. So it's interesting. Soleimani was sort of almost got taken out 12 years ago. Who knows how things would have changed. But that is a very interesting article, The Anatomy of Assassination. It goes through sort of the historical assassinations that have taken place and some of the policy considerations. So if you want a good understanding of it, I'm not going to read. You can read the article on your own. I'm not going to read through it. Now, Israel is in a bit of turmoil again. We always talk about, boy, I'm glad that, uh, you know, remember last year we were saying, boy, I'm glad we don't have Israeli politics because, you know, Israeli politics are kind of tumultuous. Well, how's that working out for us right now? I mean, here we are. Um, in American history, very few elections have gone on this long in terms of determining a winner. Uh, and this, remember back when they had millions of paper ballots each day to count? And we would know that evening who won, or the next morning. It didn't drag on like this when we have all this electronic stuff. And the vote totals keep, they keep going up all these different places. But now here's what's happened. Uh, they've started the, they have to introduce this bill three or six times to dissolve the Knesset. When they dissolve the Knesset, the government is, goes into a caretaker government like we've seen three or four times over the past year and a half, and they will have new elections. Right now, it looks like it's, it's hard to know how it's going to go. Blue and white 
support, which is in the coalition with Netanyahu right now, their, their support has pretty much collapsed. And Naftali Bennett's party is now probably the leading party in the polls, which is conservative. So the hope is that there would be a, cons- a, a right conservative religious coalition that would lead the next government. And that leads to Caroline Glick's article, which is in Israel Hayom on Friday, titled Biden and Israel's Unsteady Right. And he said, she says, listen, we have got to be prepared for the Biden administration. They are no friends of Israel. They, the, there's all these left-wing people that are being put into place or floated. And it's very unusual that Republican senators have even come out and said, there's no way that person would ever be confirmed. And I'm talking like, for example, they have a person that wants to go into HHS and put back in place the what Obama had done. Because they say, well, Trump had no right to do it, but we want to put in place what Obama had done. And there was a court decision this week on DACA, which said, hey, Trump, you can't do that. Obama, he could, he could act without authority and put it in place, but you can't undo it. This is extraordinary. I, I, <laughs> it should be a very easy decision for a court. Uh, listen, Obama did it. You can undo it. That's what the executives do. But no, you've got to shut down Trump at all costs. Caroline notes that uh, Biden... Um, oh, Biden. Did I say oh, Biden? <laughs> Biden. Sorry, the third term of Obama 3.0, I guess you would call it. Uh, although Biden says, well, that's not true. I'm not, this is not going to be a continuation of the Obama administration. We're going to use all the same people, you know, and the same policies, but it's different. Don't, don't believe, what are you going to believe? Your, what your eyes are seeing or what I'm telling you? Well, I'm going to believe what I'm seeing. And so as we had this interview with Thomas Friedman in the New York Times, we got to figure out how to work together. How many, raise your hand if you believe that, that uh, Biden wants to reach across the aisle? And then he said this, and this is a quote from the interview, I feel like I've done something good for the country by making sure that Donald Trump is not going to be president for four more years. Biden had a lot to say about how he intends to reshape U.S.-China strategy, and why he is ready to return to the Iran nuclear deal if Iran does and end President Trump's sanctions on Iran. I might add, particularly if my family can get contracts in Iran. I will jump right on that. So here's what Caroline says. The U.S. will rescind its economic sanctions on Iran if it complies with the nuclear deal's limitations on its nuclear activities. Once this happens, President Biden said he will seek to negotiate a new, longer-term nuclear deal with Iran's ayatollahs. The current deal expires in five years. Biden insisted the goal of his policy is to prevent Iran from getting the bomb. But practically speaking, Biden's policy guarantees Iran will develop a nuclear arsenal and the missiles to deliver them. They already have the missiles to deliver them, it appears. This is true both because the nuclear deal will expire and Iran will be free to build nuclear bombs as it likes in 2025, and because the 2015 nuclear deal has no effect, no effective enforcement mechanism. 
And this is true. This is what everybody was saying. And what everybody was saying would happen will come true. So I would highly recommend get Caroline Glick's article on Israel Health, or go to carolineglick.com and you can read the article. Now, a couple of developments in the Middle East over the past uh, couple of days. At least things that happened a week ago are being reported. Things happening in the last 24 hours. And I'm just going to tell you, everything is in a bit of a state of turmoil. So some of this is verified. Some of this is not verified. I will specify what's not verified. This is an article from the Kuwaiti newspaper called Al Jarita. Um, Al Jarita sometimes gets out a little bit ahead of the facts, but uh, from digging around as best as I can, what Al Jarita has said in this article that was appeared, I think, December 2nd, it concerns Hassan Nasrallah, the head of Hezbollah. And here is what the Jarita newspaper, Al Jarita newspaper reports. Nasrallah moved to Iran before the assassination of Iranian nuclear chief Faki Zadeh outside Tehran. Um, the, so he's, he went to Iran because why? Because he was concerned. He had, and his intelligence was telling him, the Israelis are coming to get you. And they're going to take out you and a bunch of your militia heads and Hezbollah heads. So he fled. He left his bunker. He's very rarely, if ever, seen in public. Uh, he was seen in Tehran about a year ago. And he moved. He went to Tehran. And he didn't come back even after Fazekhed got assassinated. Uh, part of what was happening was they said going was his move to Tehran was prompted by what's going on in Syria. Iranian intelligence services were on a high level alert due to the possibility that Iran or its nuclear facilities were, uh, were going to be subjected to American or Israeli military strike before President Trump left office on January 20th. According to intelligence reports, the IRGC, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard, had uncovered a large operation uh, in which Israel was prepared to assassinate Nasrallah, uh, who's the Secretary General of Hezbollah and a large number of leaders of the factions in Syria, Iran, and Palestine that are loyal to Iran. They say that Nasrallah's stay in Iran is indefinite, but he may return on the eve of the inauguration of Biden. But then it also concluded with this statement, which is interesting, Tehran and its allies are preparing for a confrontation with Israel and Syria. And you remember the maps I've showed you over the last few weeks that come from uh, Israeli think tanks and the IDF that show the Hezbollah installations in southern Lebanon, also along the Golan Heights. Um, things are kind of heating up along there. There could be a major conflict. There might not be. But nevertheless, people are watching this. It's a very precarious situation. And it's serious enough that by all accounts, Nasrallah said, I got to get out of Lebanon and I need to go to Iran where I think I'll be safer. Although we've seen recently that that doesn't prove to be safer. But then more important news were these tweets that came out, and this does appear to be true as best as I can tell. If not, then ignore it. 
but uh, the reports are that uh, Supreme Leader Ayatollah Khamenei has uh, is uh, in a very bad situation. They believe because of pro advanced prostate cancer, and that he may be near death. Uh, so he has now passed his power onto his son. This is one of the tweets. Iranian sources talk about the deterioration of the health of the Iranian leader since last night and confirm that those close to Khamenei are very afraid of Khamenei's health condition at this time. So he passed his on to his son, um, Mojtaba Khamenei, who oversees several security and intelligence departments in Iran. And this is very common. What they do in these Iranian power structure is they give like portfolios to different people. They're allowed to make money, control a lot of money, patronage in people with these different portfolios, but then they don't have as big a portfolio as the supreme leader. So by most accounts, Ayatollah Khamenei, although he appears to live rather modestly, controls a fortune of somewhere in the estimated range of 75 to 100 billion dollars. Very, one of the very, very wealthy person. He controls a lot of money. The heads of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard also have vast portfolios of wealth, and they use that to fund their operations. And then they all kind of, this very complex situation. So his son has some security and that type of thing. Now there's claim that there's some rivals to him. The, some of the Ayatollah, some of the clerics don't like him. Um, they wanted to succeed to power. Uh, it looks like he's on track right now to become the next supreme leader. But that, that could change. Somebody could assassinate him. I've heard that Rafsin Jani, who was uh, the president of Iran for a while, he used to have the position of Rouhani, Rouhani has. Rafsin Jani, who died a number of years ago, he was controlling a fortune of about, estimated to be at about $25 billion when he died. So these people have vast amounts of wealth that they control, and by that they control the country and the society. So here is one little blurb. Um, Mohammad Hashimi, a brother of former President Akbar Hashimi Rafsanjani and former Deputy Interior Minister Mustafa, whatever his name is, have said that Mojtaba has interfered with the election process and been involved in suppressing Iranian dissidents. So... He's interfered with the election process. That's how the president has gotten elected. He's been, he controls that. I don't think there's any truth to the rumor that he's now consulting with the American Democratic Party. I think you should, that's a joke. But this is, this is what this guy does. And then this, also this report, that Brigadier General Mahmoud Abadi has died from COVID-19. He was responsible alongside Qassam Soleimani for sending Iranian-backed troops to Syria. He also founded the IRG's Special Forces Saberan Brigade, and he passed away within the last 24, 48 hours from COVID-19. He had been in a coma since mid-October. Uh, so there's been some major, major shakeups going on in Iran. So, and this is true, it's like everywhere you look, there's all these different power struggles, you know, you have Europe and France and the U.S. and it's just, it's everywhere you look. And one last thing, um, 
The, this is a front page of the Jerusalem Post today. Jordan fears losing control of Jerusalem Muslim sites. Now, officially what King Abdullah is doing is Abdullah is saying it's Israel's fault. We're losing control of these holy sites. Um, Abdullah is trying to maintain control of these places. And you remember, every video that I play of Abdullah, he says the Muslim and Christian holy sites. He never talks to them in, in terms of Jewish holy sites. He nev- those words never cross his lips. Well, what's happening, though, is Turkey is sending an influence, particularly into East Jerusalem and within the Waqf, to get people associated with the Muslim Brotherhood, which now effectively is a franchise of the of Turkey, of Erdogan in Turkey, to control the holy sites. So Abdullah's concern is, I'm losing control of these holy sites, but his concern is really because of what Turkey is doing, not necessarily what Israel is doing. And this article also in today's paper, defend the Temple Mount for um, Jews and Muslims. At the same time, this is going on, Abbas is running around the Middle East, meeting with al-Sisi in Egypt, uh, down at uh, Aqaba, down on the Red Sea with King Abdullah, to try to maintain influence. And because there's a shakeup coming in the Palestinian leadership, Abbas is 85 years old. They just lost one of their main leaders to COVID just a few we- couple weeks ago. So here is, uh, there was a IISS Institute for, International Institute for Strategic Studies, has a thing each year called the Monomont Dialogue. And you might remember, I think it was a year ago, Jared Kushner went to the Monomont Dialogue in Bahrain and said, hey, we got this peace plan coming out for the Middle East. Maybe that was two years ago. I, I can't remember. Things kind of get lost. But I think it was the beginning of, 20, at the end of 2019. Now, I take it back. It was the end of 2018 because they came out. No. When did they come out with the peace? I guess it was last year, a year ago, because they came out with the Trump plan in 2019. Nevertheless, there were questions asked of the Saudi foreign minister who was at this uh, conference. What are you going to do? There are two people that you should listen to. One is uh, Secretary of State Pompeo was asked questions, and I just want you to listen to how he, return, how he answers the questions in light of what we think is going on with the election. You asked my wisdom for the next administration. They're plenty smart enough. They'll figure their way through this. What I would say is to the world, that can't be the right direction. It cannot be that the right direction is to allow Iran to continue to buy and sell weapons again can't be the case that the right direction is to allow Iran to have access to Western technology and Western capital. Again, those are the things we have seen that destabilize the Middle East, that make it riskier for people, whether they're in Egypt or Kuwait or in Bahrain. It makes them less able to live their lives in ways that aren't under threat from this theocratic terrorist regime. But that would Down that path lies what we have all seen, a real risk to the stability of the region. And then here's what the Saudi foreign minister had to say. Uh, regarding uh, Palestine and Israel and also uh, whether we will uh, at some point uh, join the Abraham Accords, I think there are two things that are very much linked in our view. 
For us, it's now critically important that we focus on getting uh, Palestinians and Israelis back to the negotiating table because only a, a negotiated settlement that delivers uh, a state uh, for the Palestinians within the lines uh, that are, uh, I think, globally understood uh, will eventually constitute a, a Palestinian state, will deliver true peace in the region, and that should be the focus for now. Uh, we are, as we have always been, as we were through our uh, proposal in the 2002 peace plan and even uh, in 1982 in Fez with the uh, Fahad proposal, uh, completely open to full normalization with Israel. We think Israel will take its place in the region, but in order for that to happen and for that to be sustainable, we do need the Palestinians to get their state and we do need to settle that situation. And I will also say this, that the Iranian people that are opposed to the regime are not very happy with the results of the election. They thought that Trump had Tehran on the ropes, that the regime could fail. But now they're certain that Biden will not do anything to oppose that. And so this is the question, what's going to happen in 2021? I was conversing with a friend this morning by message, and he said... Um, you know, we were talking about the vaccines and some of the research that he's doing. And he sent me a bunch of it. I haven't had a chance to review it yet. But his comment at the end was, you know, John, I've been studying Bible prophecy for a long time. And I'm looking at what's going on. And I have to tell you, I think 2020, we'll look back at 2020 and wish that we could have the good old days of 2020 once we get into 2021. This is the economy. I hate to say that because I know people are stressed enough anyway, and God's in control. We all know that. But we're, we're at a very interesting time. This is the cover of The Economist. They always do their little predictive thing. And look at what they predict. And a lot of times they're fairly accurate. They have nuclear bomb. They have dollars. They have the vaccine. They have the mass. They have the broken United States. They have wind power. They have social media. They have an economic recovery, coronavirus. I mean, this is, this is what they're looking at. But what, what, what is the way that they choose to present it? It's a, it's a slot machine, okay? How often does a slot machine pay off? Um, I don't know. <laughs> I'll say when I'm going through the Vegas airport, I put quarters in them you know, maybe 10 times, and I've never gotten a cent back. So in my view, the slot machine is a real gamble because you're not going to get, you don't know what's going to happen, but it's probably not going to come up the way you want it. Uh, now, let's hope that it's not that way, but we certainly see all the signs of uh, tremendous turmoil, the vaccine, the economic devastation, um, I was up at Cord in Canton, Ohio. I, I grew up there the first 15 years of my life. Um, I was downtown, middle of the day on Wednesday, before lunch. I had to walk a block to the courthouse, did my work for half an hour and came back, walked another block. I saw three people on the street, downtown Canton, while I was there. Three in the middle of a city. This, I go to my office, there's nobody in the parking garage. It's, this is very hard to process. We live in a very 
strange world. Um, look, I know God is in control. I have a strange sense of peace about, my, about things. I really do. But I also know that there's tremendous turmoil in the world and that this is what God, through his prophets, predicted the end times would be like. So what did you expect? I think we're on the edge, literally, of some very significant changes. Let's pray that we can always do things and act to glorify God in what we do. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. We pray that you'll bless us. Keep us uh, fast in your word, in prayer, and always looking forward to the time that Jesus returns and ultimately sets up his kingdom and restores all things. Give us opportunities to share the truth of the gospel with friends and people around us. In Jesus' name, amen.